We're going to have to stop right now. If I may ask if someone would just close the, uh, the, the wooden door, please. Thank you. I want to speak to you this morning about a very hot button issue in the, in the Christian church. And um, there's a lot to say and there's a lot to talk about this morning. I don't know if we're going to get, be able to get to it all. If we don't, we'll, we'll of course uh, pick up next week where we left off. And this is, uh, this is a subject that we've been leading up to in this church. And one of the reasons that we have divided the verses up the way that we have in the previous weeks I'd like you to open your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 1, verse 8. I want to speak to you this morning about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. The baptism in the Holy Spirit. How many of you have either heard some kind of teaching or know something about or been in churches that stress the baptism in the Holy Spirit? Would you raise your hand? Okay. All over. And this is, uh, this is one of those, those topics that we need to talk about. And it's not just good enough to say, okay, uh, you know, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for Christians. Okay, let's pray and go home. Uh, we need to talk about exactly what it is. And that's, that's the key here this morning. It's a hot-button topic because there are different denominations. And there are precious Christians that look at this topic differently and this is why we come back to over and over again what does the scripture say if you were here on uh, Tuesday night during the prayer meeting we talked about the principle of the Reformation called sola scriptura and I hope no one's eyes glaze over this morning as we're going through all this because this is such important stuff. But the, the principle is this, that the scripture is our final authority. Now, every Bible-believing evangelical church would agree with that. They would say the scripture is our final authority. But it's not just good enough to say that we must study the text carefully and we must understand the scripture in context so that we can rightly say this is what the scripture is actually saying it's one thing to hold a bible in our hand and say i believe the bible i believe it's all true it's all in there it's all from god that's good that's really good that that's step one but we've got to go beyond that and we've got to say our experiences our feelings, what we think, uh, how we perceive things should uh, happen or be in the church, everything should be submitted to what does the scripture say. And I don't have time to get into it this morning, but it's possible for one to come and say, well, I don't understand why we're doing this or we're doing that in, in the church. Or why don't we just allow anybody that comes into the church to be in ministry? I mean, aren't we a group of loving people? Well, yes, 
but we go to the scriptures and we say, what does the scripture say about the qualifications for ministry? And so I would just ask you uh, this morning, first of all, as we start out here in looking at this subject, are you willing to say to yourself and to the Lord, Lord, I'm willing to submit to you my traditions, the way that possibly I've thought, and Lord, I want your word to convince me. And Lord, even if things uh, come up that I might not have heard before or I might not have understood properly, Lord, I ask you that instead of just continuing in what I've been thinking, that Lord, I would actually say, what is the text of Scripture saying? And Lord, let me come underneath its authority. Because it's your word, O oh Lord, that we finally say is the final say in all things. Now, if you go with me to Mark chapter 1, John is preaching. And if you remember, we have said that he is distinguishing between his ministry and the ministry of Christ. Last week, we saw that he said, I am less than and Christ is more than. And we began to touch on the fact that John was saying, here is how he's more than. His ministry is greater than mine. And now he goes into verse, what we have here in verse 8. And here's how he distinguishes the two ministries. He says, I, John, have baptized you with water. By the way, that, that word means to immerse, to plunge under. I have baptized you with water, John is saying, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And John is saying that this is, this is the mark that separates his ministry from the ministry of Christ. He says, I baptize with water, but the one who comes after me, he is going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. He's going to baptize you. If there's anything that we must understand this morning, it is this. We are people of the Spirit. We're people of the Spirit. And may that, may that sink into our hearts this morning, that we are people who are not just coming in learning certain things that we just take into our brains, but we are people that if we know Christ, have come into a transformative relationship with God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the desire for every person in this church is that you would experience the mighty presence of the Holy Spirit. That's my prayer. That's my prayer for everyone in this church. I don't care if you've known Christ for one year or if you've known him for 45 years. Our, our message here this morning and the message of the New Testament is that we are people of the Holy Spirit. That's who we are. That's what separates us from all the religions of the world. All the religions of the world have creeds. All of the religions of the world pray. They all do religious things. They go to temple. They go to the mosque. They go to certain buildings to hear speeches. They believe certain tenets. But listen, we are much different than all of that because we are people of the Holy Spirit, people who have experienced Him, people who have been convicted by Him, people who have been comforted by Him, 
people who have experienced him when we're standing here on a Sunday morning and we're singing songs to the Lord, people who have actually experienced his presence. He's with us. We're people of the Spirit. When I was uh, growing up, I was uh, born and raised in charismatic slash Pentecostal circles. That's my background. And so when I talk to you this morning about what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, I want you to understand my background. That I grew up in churches where people spoke in tongues freely. Uh, grew up in churches where the gift of prophecy was accepted as for today. Gifts of healing, that God was still present among us working in miracles and still giving out the gifts of the Spirit that are listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and you can read about that in chapters 12 through 14. We've talked about this before, but I can remember the environment of churches growing up where there was such a saturation toward the end of the days of the Jesus movement. There was such a saturation of the presence of the Holy Spirit in his manifest presence. We believe that God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. And we could all say, well, he's here with us this, this morning, and he is. But there are times when God comes in such a profound way in what we call his manifest presence, where we sense that he's really with us where we experience him. And I believe that there is a generation today that is looking for the supernatural. And if they come into our churches and all they experience is dry, dead religion, they're going to want no part of it, and I don't blame them because I wouldn't want any part of it either. And yes, there are times when Christians feel afraid and say, well, I get a little uneasy when it comes to the work of the Spirit and all of that. I, I don't want to go too crazy. I don't want to be seen as a spiritual nut. But I will tell you this, that our churches have gone far to the other extreme in many cases where we have no longer been pursuing the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit. We come into church, churches dry and empty, and we leave in exactly the same way. And God does not want that for us. And your heart should long to say, Lord, I, I want something more. I know I know you. It's not that I don't know you. If I were to die today, I would go to heaven. But Lord, if I looked at my life, and perhaps you need to ask yourself uh, this morning this question, if you were to look at your life as a Christian, are you experiencing the presence of the Holy Spirit? Are you a person who is walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit? Do you find it easy to worship? Are you easily moved by the things of God? Are you easily moved by the things of God? Do tears form in your eyes when the word of God is preached or when you hear a song that is exalting the name of Jesus? Or are you hard and indifferent? Has sin gotten a hold of your life to, to the point of where you say, well, 
I, I, I think I, I know the Lord. I mean, I'm a Christian, but the truth of the matter is you've become hard. You've become hard. And so don't think that when we talk about the Spirit, that the Spirit is just something that happens way back when we got saved. Now we have to just kind of grind it through life, learning precepts and principles from the Scripture, but it's not really a living reality to us. That is completely foreign to the New Testament. When you read the New Testament over and over again, you see the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Bear the fruit of the Spirit. Be full of the Holy Spirit. And these were not people who just heard about the Holy Spirit and they heard a sermon about the Holy Spirit and they said, well, that's very interesting. And then they just went home. No, 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 no. They, they, they experienced Him in His profound ways. They could go out and say, I met with the living God because the Holy Spirit is fully God. And may He do that among us. May He do that among us. May he do that with each person that's sitting here in this church. That we open ourselves up afresh to his work, even if you're scared. Especially if you've become hard and indifferent to the things of God. Not easily moved. We are first and foremost people of the Spirit. Now... In charismatic or Pentecostal circles, the teaching of the baptism of the Holy Spirit goes something like this. A person gets saved, and we need to be very careful to understand the teaching. The teaching is a person comes to Christ, they repent of their sins, they trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, understanding that salvation is a gift freely given by grace. We say amen to all of that. And a person comes and they kneel before the Lord, whether physically or in their heart, they simply say to the Lord, Lord, I come to you and I ask you for the forgiveness of my sins. They're cut to the heart. And in our circles and in Pentecostal circles, people would say when someone calls on the name of the Lord from a pure heart, from a heart that has been moved by the Holy Spirit, that that person will become instantly saved. There's no waiting. I've heard some people say in Pentecostal circles and, or, or, or that, that, that people who are, are Baptist or Presbyterian don't really believe in the Holy Spirit and that when you come to Christ, you repent of your sins, you don't really receive the Holy Spirit. That's not true. Listen, in, in, in Orthodox Baptist circles, in Orthodox Pentecostal circles, in Orthodox Presbyterian circles, we all believe, listen carefully, we all believe that when someone repents of their sins and trusts in Jesus Christ alone to save them, that they receive the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We all agree on that. Every one of us. But Pentecostals go on to say that there's something else that a Christian needs. That even though they have been saved even though they have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit within them, 
that a person needs to receive something else from the Holy Spirit, and this has sometimes been termed as a second blessing, sometimes it has been termed as a second work of grace, sometimes it's been termed as just a second work of the Holy Spirit in our life, and oftentimes it is termed under the phrase, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So a person in Pentecostal circles, they come to Jesus Christ by faith, and we see that person, praise the Lord, welcome to the family of faith, you're a Christian. But then the Pentecostal, or charismatic, would say, but that there's something else. You've received the Holy Spirit here, you know Christ, but still you need to go to this step over here and you need to receive what is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this is a work of empowerment. This is a, this is a work of sanctification. This is a work for evangelism. And so if you go into one of these churches, they'll say to you, okay, you've been saved. And they might ask you a question like this. You've been saved, you know Christ, you're on your way to heaven. But have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? And the person goes, well, I, I, don't, I don't know. And in Pentecostal circles, what they will say to you is this. The way that you know that you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, and I'm quoting here, and in the Assemblies of God and other Pentecostal denominations like this, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, not salvation, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit is always evidenced by the initial physical evidence of speaking in tongues. So what they would teach is this, you get saved here, you have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, been forgiven of your sins, but then when you come to this second blessing, this is, this is a, a profound time in your life where you have now received the Holy Spirit's work in a greater measure, in a greater way. And the evidence of that is that you will speak in tongues. And so you have people that go up to the front of a sanctuary and people will lay their hands on them and they'll say, Lord, we're asking for this person to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What's interesting in charismatic circles, they would say it's not necessarily evidenced by speaking in tongues. In other words, you can still get this experience but you might not necessarily speak in tongues, although usually or sometimes you will. Saved. Then you come to this place in your life where you have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I can remember praying over people. Saying, Lord, this person really loves you. They know you. Lord, would you give them this blessing? And I can remember in my college days thinking to myself, something isn't quite right here. I want you to understand something. It wasn't the experience I was troubled with. Because the truth of the matter is we should be really concerned. You know, there's a lot of people who are not experiencing the presence of the Spirit. That should grieve us. 
That should grieve us. You know how many friends I had who were taught the Word of God, who knew the Bible, knew Bible verses, understood that Jesus is the only way, and yet walked away from the faith. You know how many? Can I tell you why? They never experienced the profound work of the Holy Spirit. They were never cut to the heart. It was all here. They knew certain things about God. They could tell you certain things about God. But it had never moved them, as we said last week. It had never affected them. So we'd be praying for people, and we'd be saying, Lord, this person knows you. God, we're asking that you would, that you would come and that you would give this person this, this second blessing of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And there were well-meaning people who would come forward. Some that I've seen and witnessed would begin to speak in tongues. And others would stand there and it seems like nothing would happen. And I began to ask the Lord about this whole thing. I had been looking at it for some time. Well, Lord, what does your word really say about this whole thing? Because if, if this is right and from you, God, we, we desperately need your presence. There's no doubt about that. God, there are many churches we're dead. Lord, we need an encounter with you. But God, is this, is this what you're teaching that a person... Begins? So you have, you have two-class Christianity. You know, you have, the, you have the Christians that are... You know, they're saved and they're, they're going to heaven and everything, but they're kind of like first-tier Christians. And then you have like the turbocharged Holy Spirit baptized Christians. These are the people with, uh, with extra fuel in the tank. You begin to look at that and say, something doesn't seem right here. Something doesn't seem right. And yet there were scriptures that were used, and if you looked at certain scriptures, you go, well, I think I can see what they're saying, but to me, they were never fully convincing. And I want to give you an example. I want to take you to probably one of the strongest ones, and that is in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Now, Philip is preaching in... Samaria, Philip is preaching in Samaria, and in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, it says this, Acts 8, verse 4, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them, the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip, later like Lydia, this is the same kind of language, was able to pay attention to the things that were being said. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many were paralyzed, who were paralyzed or lame, were healed. 
So there was much joy in that city. So the picture here is Philip is preaching the word of God. Many are hearing it and many are receiving it. Now there can be no doubt about this. This is, um, this is something where people were actually listening with spiritual ears. They were hearing the word of God. The, the scripture says here that they were receiving it with joy. Now in verse 14 it says this, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Well, that's interesting. Verse 16, For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So what's going on here? You have, you have people here who have heard the word of God, and evidently they have received it. There's no doubt about that. We can't say these people aren't understanding the word that they're not convicted they received it not only did they receive the word of god but they were even baptized that's something and it says that they had heard the word of god by philip that they received the word of god with much joy that they were baptized and yet the apostles hear about this and they say the spirit of god has not yet fallen on any of them and so the spirit of god needed to come upon them so they send a couple apostles up to Samaria, and the apostles begin to pray over them, and the Bible says that the Spirit falls, and that they all receive the Holy Spirit. And the Pentecostal says, see there? You have a perfect picture of people who were saved, who actually knew Christ, and yet who still needed to be what they would call baptized in the Holy Spirit. There it is right there in Acts chapter 8. And you have other examples. And I don't think many of them are as strong, but you have people saying, well, Jesus, he was born of the Holy Spirit, and that could picture conversion, but later on the Holy Spirit descended upon him, when that is a picture of him, uh, receiving the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit or anointing for ministry. And so you have this, this two-stage thing. You have at the end of John where Jesus breathes on the apostles and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And people say, well, that's, that's conversion. But later in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes and the Bible says that they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they say, see, there's another example. And they have several examples. And we could go to other places where you have pictures of what seems like people receiving the Holy Spirit or receiving salvation and yet at another time receiving this second blessing or the second work of grace. And so they will then say, well, then this is what you need. If you've been saved, that's good. If you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's great. If you've been baptized, which has nothing to do with your salvation but gives evidence of it, that's all well and good. But you still need this profound second work, and that is, that is why your Christian life is not what it should be. 
And so we have this conundrum. We admit, when we look at the church, that in many cases, it seems dry. And people are not experiencing the Holy Spirit as he should be experienced. And yet as we look at these texts, even though we can see that this could be a possible explanation for what's going on, it doesn't seem convincing. Is that really what is being taught here in the scripture? And why don't we have more explicit teaching throughout the scripture that explicitly says, listen, you guys all received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's really good. Explicit didactic teaching that says this, this is what you have. This is what you've received. But yet you need something else. You need to have the second blessing, the second work of grace that will take you to the next tier or the next level of Christianity. We don't have that. In fact, if all we were going to do was take examples from the book of Acts, and that's where these examples primarily come from, the question then becomes when the Bible says, and they sold all their goods. Is that mean, is that the pattern for my life now? Because the early church, in many cases, they, they sold all their goods. So is what Acts is really teaching, and there have been believers who have thought this, if I, if I really want to be a good Christian, that what I need to do is sell all I have and give it to the poor. Is that what it's teaching? Is that the pattern? Or when it says all of his household believed and were baptized, does that mean that infants were baptized? When it says the whole household was baptized, do we need to think in terms of mom and dad, children, perhaps infants, and extrapolate from that teaching a teaching that says, those principles that say, well, it says it, we've got to sell all that we have, we've got to give it to the poor, and we also need to baptize infants or children. And this is why, dear friend, it is so important to know the scripture. Because you can hear something and it sound real good and you can even see it. But it's, un, it, it's unimportant in our minds if we're not willing to take the time to really understand the text in context. And so looking at this, it seems like, even though someone could pull out these principles, that they're less than convincing. In fact, what it makes, our text, in Mark chapter 1, it makes John the Baptist actually talking about a second blessing or a second work of grace. That's what it makes him talking about. In fact, I want you to flip there so you can see this. If you go back to Mark... Matthew, Mark, Mark uh, chapter 1, verse 8, he says this, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
I want to stop there for just a second. Is what John the Baptist is talking about here, is what he's saying here, you're going to receive a second blessing? Is that the question he's asking? Is that what he's presenting in his preaching? He's saying, look, I, I, I baptize with water, but some of you Christians in the future will receive this second blessing called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Is that really what he's saying? Is he saying that, that this, is, this is the pinnacle of the teaching of John the Baptist, that people are going to get saved, but that's not really, that's really not the pinnacle, that's not the peak. He's seeing over that peak and he's saying, look, I baptize you with water, but the one who's coming after me, the really important thing is that there's this second blessing that's open to you if you'll but receive it. And I don't think that fits. I don't think that's what he's saying. I don't think John the Baptist is saying, look, I'm just talking about some second blessing or I'm simply talking about some second work of grace. That's, that doesn't seem to fit. He seems to be contrasting his ministry with the ministry of Christ. He's saying, listen, the best I can do is baptize you in water, but the one who comes after me, I'm not talking about a second blessing. Listen, this is what he's going to do to all of you. This is the promise for all. This is, this is marvelous. This is grand in its scope. What he's saying is, I baptize you with water, but there's going to come one after me. And he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Oh, let us not relegate this to a second blessing and miss what John the Baptist is saying. Gordon Fee, who is probably the most notable uh, Pentecostal theologian, and I bring him up because he's in the Assemblies of God, he writes a number of interesting things, and if you're interested in this topic, this, this book that I'm quoting from is called Gospel and Spirit, Gospel and Spirit by Gordon Fee. But in this book, uh, he says a couple of actually many interesting things, but I only want to read to you a few of them. But the reason I bring him up is because he's within the Pentecostal movement. And I pray that there will even be people who are listening to this in the future, even online, who take the time to really think through these things and think about what this man has said because it's vitally important, and this is a man who's coming from within the circles. This isn't just a man who's like some, you know, fundamental Baptist taking shots at Pentecostals. But I want you to listen to, to what he says. We have to put our thinking caps on this morning, but it's, it's important. He says this, Two observations should be made about hermeneutics within the traditional Pentecostal movement. Another huge word. Hermeneutics. That simply means the interpretation of Scripture. So he says there's a few things that can be said about the way that Pentecostals interpret the Scripture. He says this, first, is their attitude towards Scripture regularly has included a general disregard 
for scientific exegesis and carefully thought out hermeneutics. What's he saying about the Pentecostal movement? He's saying within that movement, there has been a general disregard to really look at the scripture and try to interpret it rightly by looking at it in depth. He goes on to say they, they look at the scripture, they will say the word of God is our standard. It's not that they don't believe in the Bible, but what he's saying is it's been surface level, the study. In fact, he goes on to say hermeneutics has simply not been a Pentecostal thing. That is, biblical interpretation has simply not been a Pentecostal thing. Scripture is the word of God and is to be obeyed, but in place of scientific, that is careful hermeneutics, interpretation, there developed a kind of pragmatic hermeneutics. Well, if it's practical and it works, if this is what we're experiencing, then this must be what the scripture says. He goes on to say this, it's, it's not that Pentecostals did not look to the text for the origination of their theology, but for biblical and theological verification of their experience. What's he saying? He's saying instead of looking at the scripture and then getting what they should experience out of, their, out of the scripture that's exegeting the text to drain the text of its meaning, he says that there were Pentecostals who had experiences with God and then said, well, it must be in the text of Scripture. So they went back to the Bible and they read their experience into Scripture, and that's called eisegesis. Now, some of you got to be going, is this thing almost over? But what he's, his point is this, is that Correct biblical interpretation takes the scripture and brings the meaning out of it. And eisegesis takes our, our experiences to the text and somehow tries to fit them into the text. And that's what he is saying is the problem. He goes on to say this, and then we'll move, move on. He says, the purpose of this present essay is to open the question of separability and subsequence once again, and to suggest that there is in fact very little biblical support for the traditional Pentecostal position on this matter. He goes, he goes on to say, he says, what he's saying is this, he says, when you actually look at the scripture coming from the inside, and you actually look at what they're saying, that instead of finding baptism in the Holy Spirit subsequent to conversion, that's actually not what you find. The experience is good, but the explanation and the interpretation from Scripture is not. Now I'm going to give you one more point, and then we're going to move on to this next week because there's so much here. But I want to give you the background in the Old Testament for the baptism of the Holy Spirit and I hope that whets our appetite for next week. So let's go to the Old Testament. Let's start in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18. 
Deuteronomy chapter 18. Verse 15. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord your God, Moses is speaking, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. So listen carefully. The Old Testament. And Moses as their leader. Moses comes down from Mount Sinai with the law. He gives the people the law. But do you know this? That the law never changed anyone's heart. Law doesn't change anyone's heart. You can have law, law, law. Do this, do that, do this, do that. In fact, in Romans, it actually says that the law actually excites sin. What do we want to do the second someone says, don't do that? We want to do it. Hey, child, don't, don't touch those cookies. First thing that child wants to do is, I'm going to touch those, those cookies. Moses is saying, listen, there's going to come one who's greater than me. And you'll listen to him. I want you to flip over to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 and 2. Now remember in, in your mind... Moses has said there is going to come one who is greater than him. To him you will listen. Then in uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. Now listen to this. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. There's seven mentions of the Spirit here. Spirit of the Lord, that's one. Spirit of wisdom, two. Spirit of understanding, three. Spirit of counsel, four. Spirit of might, five. Spirit of knowledge, six. And the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. It says this one who's coming is going to be the Spirit bearer interesting in Revelation chapter 1 it says before the throne of Christ there are seven spirits and uh, we, we see this talked about here in Isaiah 11 what is this time as it's talking about the Holy Spirit is like seven spirits no it's simply talking about the fullness and the perfection of the Holy Spirit when we think of the number seven it's the number of completion and what this is saying here is that this one who's coming, whom you shall listen to, he will be the spirit bearer. He will be the spirit giver. Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, Isaiah 42. It 
Isaiah chapter 42. Behold, verse 1, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Another text about this coming one, this coming one is going to be greater than Moses, is going to be the spirit bearer. His ministry is going to be marked by the Holy Spirit. Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61. Verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. This one who's coming, this one who's greater than Moses, his ministry is going to be marked by one of the Holy Spirit. Fullness in the Holy Spirit and a giving of the Holy Spirit. He's going to minister in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what this is saying. And the Spirit is going to do something much profound than what was happening in the Old Testament. So we need to look at this. Go with me back to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. Verse 29, Numbers chapter 11, verse 29. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, and the Lord would put his spirit on them. What is he saying? He's saying, number one, there's going to come one who's going to be the spirit bearer, who's going to give the spirit, who's going to minister in the spirit. And the second thing is there was this desire in the Old Testament for people to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. I want you to think about this. This was, uh, this was dark times. The fullness of the spirit in the Old Testament had not come. People were saved by looking forward to the Messiah, but as far as being empowered by the Spirit, the work of the Spirit was there, but it was on a very minimal level. And so prophet after prophet was looking forward to a time, oh, that the Spirit of God would come. Oh, that the Spirit of God would come and begin to transform people. Because the law hasn't worked, we can give out the law all we want. And all the law does is condemn people. All the law does is exacerbate the situation. All the law does is make people want to sin anymore. And we can try to tweak people's hearts. We can say, please love God, love God, love God. And people go, I, I, I guess I should love God. But there's no love for God. And there was this desire, the prophets are looking forward and they're saying, but there's one who's coming and he's going to be full of the Holy Spirit. He's going to minister in the power of the Holy Spirit and he's going to give the Holy Spirit. 
And I want you to see this if you go with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. We're going to just look at two more texts and we're going to close. We're going to go to Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Joel, and we're going to close. Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31. Verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, that they broke. He said, I'm, I'm going to do away with the, the Mosaic covenant, the Sinaitic covenant. I was their husband, declares the Lord. Listen to this. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Be careful to obey my rules. Last one, Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, verse 28. We're going somewhere. We're going to finish this next week. We are going somewhere with this. Joel 2, verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and the female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. Let me close by saying this. What is he saying? He's saying in the Old Testament there was a longing. God, would you send someone to whom the people will listen? God, would you do such would you, God, would you come in such a powerful way that instead of working from the outside, You actually come from within the inside and you change a person's heart and you fill them with the Holy Spirit so now they actually want to do what you want them to do. God, we long for that day. That's what they're saying. God, we long for the day 
God, it's not here. Your people, Lord, they're struggling. They're struggling all over the place. They're, 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 they're listening to the law. They're hearing the law, but their heart isn't changed. And God, there's coming today. We're prophesying. We're looking forward to hundreds of years ahead of us when, Lord, you're going to circumcise the hearts. You're going to cut people to the heart, open their hearts, fill it with the Holy Spirit, transform them, give them a new nature so that now they can say with the psalmist, I delight to do your law. I want to do it. No one has to twist my arm and say, come on, man, be a good Christian. Keep on the right path. Worship God. In fact, sometimes the more we hear it, the more we go, no thanks. But what he's saying is, this is coming from the inside where a person is so transformed, so moved by the Holy Spirit, and it's not just on Moses, it's not just on Joel, it's not just on David, but it's everyone. Oh, that all your people would become prophets. That's what he's saying. And so that's where we need to leave for next week because now we're building up somewhere. We're going somewhere as the Old Testament is looking forward to a day when the Spirit comes in power. And I would just end this by asking you this question, and you guys have been fantastic listeners. Have you been moved? Can you say, I delight to do your law? Oh, I know we're beset by the flesh and we still have our struggles. But I'm saying, is there a new nature within you? Have you been cut to the heart over your sin? Not just that you feel bad, I messed up, but I'm talking about sinning against a holy God. Do you love to worship? You love to worship? Or are you like Christopher Hitchens that says a God who demands worship must be some kind of selfish, self-centered, maniacal God? Let's pray.